0: A Podcast One production. Our form of government. Does not enter into rivalry with the institutions of others. Our government does not copy our neighbors, but is an example to them. It is true that we are called the democracy, for the administration is in the hands of the many and not of the few. But while there exists equal justice to all and alike the in their private disputes, the claim of excellence is also recognized. And when a citizen is in any way distinguished, he is preferred to the public service, not as a matter of privilege, but as a reward of merit. Neither is poverty an obstacle, but a man may benefit his country whatever the obscurity of his condition. Now these words sound like they could have been pronounced from the hustings of any election in the last hundred years, but they're old a lot older. They belonged to Pericles, the great statesman of Athens, and he uttered them nearly 2,500 years ago. Politics, it seems, hasn't changed much in the last 78 billion seconds. G'day, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this second series, we continue our conversations with some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. On this episode, we talk to City Sydney Councilor Jess Scully about government, politics, and what's going to be happening to our cities over the next billion seconds. Let's go back to Athens In the middle of the 5th century, before the Common Era. To give you some context, Rome is not much more than a couple of huts along the Tiber River. Alexander the Great, he's not going to be born for another 100 years. China is still divided into seven warring states. But Athens is different. Athens would be what we now call a city-state. Not really a city, not really a nation, somewhere in between. Think Singapore. Athenians worked out how to share power among the demos, the common people. They have regular elections, and they have the first real politicians. Pericles is the one we remember because he was the first great politician of the first great democracy. He told Athenians they had a great history and that he was going to make Athens great again. How did he do that? Well... You mention Athens to anyone today, and one image comes to mind, the Parthenon, the archetypal Greek temple that adorns the Acropolis. Pericles built that, because politicians have all been about big, showy building projects for as long as we've had politicians. The big buildings project power, but it's also the work at human scale that really matters to people who live in a city. Cities live and thrive on vision. Take a broken, forgotten neighborhood and plunk an art center in the middle of it. Cheap space for artists to present challenging works. Build it, and they will come. And then with them come the hipsters, and then the buyers, and then the builders. And from a single seed, a city can have a new lease on life. I saw that happen in Redfern. Redfern is a suburb of Sydney, and when I moved to Australia 14 years ago, no one went there. It was too dangerous. Today, it's too cool for school because those seeds were planted. And one of the folks who planted those seeds joins us on our program. Jess Scully is an elected councillor for the city of Sydney, but that's just really the latest and most obvious of her work bringing communities and cities to life through the arts. As founding curator of the Vivid Ideas Festival, Jess brought some of the most challenging and confronting speakers to Sydney to shake a comfortable city out of its bubble. She's worked with councils around Australia using art and community to breathe life into the embers of our dying and ignored cities. And since her election as councillor in 2016, Jess has been working with local government, building the city and dealing with the daily trial that is political life, just as Pericles did two and a half millennia ago. I almost feel like we should be chatting away in Attic Greek at this point because we've just sort of set that up. All right. What is a councillor in the the context of Sydney City? What do you do?
1: Basically, I'm on the board of directors of the city. So there's 10 of us. One of them is the Lord Mayor, Clover Moore, who I think is more properly uh, uh, appreciated for the big changes that you talked about. Um, She's been uh, in charge of this city for the past 14 years and has had the most transformative effect. So there's Clover and then there's nine councillors. We're all elected and I was elected as part of Clover's team of independents. And incredibly, we are the majority on the council. So the people of the city of Sydney were like, you know what, the two big parties, all the rest of them, we're not interested. We want progressive independents running this show. Um, and that's what we do. So we meet once a month. Uh, we um, decide on e- strategic decisions and expenditure of the city. We approve decisions that are made by the city until very recently. We had a big say in planning decisions. So really, we're kind of like the Brains Trust, Sense Checkers, Voice of the People when it comes to local government issues.
0: It's really interesting that you put it this way that it's like the board of directors for the city because I've met Monica, who's the CEO. And so now I can understand, you know, there are are things that are above her pay grade. And those are the things that the board decides on. So it makes actually a lot of sense when you put it in those terms. And like a board member, you have a responsibility to the quote unquote shareholders, which are all of the voters in the city of Sydney to make sure that the business is run well. But also
1: all the non-shareholders, Mark. So there's a lot of people who live in this city and are permanent residents and can never vote. Um, There's international students. We have a huge international student population who actually are terribly exploited by a lot of our institutions and and a lot of ends of the spectrum. Um, We feel like we have a responsibility to them. We have a responsibility to tourists and visitors who come to the city and to people who just come in here to work or go out or have a drink or go to a market or go to see a cultural experience. We're responsible to all of them, even though they're not technically shareholders.
0: Mm. Well, but they're spending their money here, right? So they're invested. They may not be a shareholder. They may not be a voter, but they're clearly invested. All right, Let, let's talk about then cities themselves. And, of course, the thing we also need to make clear is everyone thinks city is 4 million people. And, in fact, the city of Sydney's is not. The city of Sydney is around, what, 150,000 voters? It's
1: about that. It's about 200,000 residents. Right. So the thing that is extraordinary about the city of Sydney, right, It's 27 square kilometres. So basically, if you know Sydney, it's from about the airport just before the airport to um, Potts Point or Rushcutter's Bay, so kind of the inner harbour. It's about as far west as Camperdown, Mm. um, and it's it's not huge. But that small 27 square kilometres is the driver of 7% of Australia's GDP. Just this little bit of the city is... actually worth more to the Australian economy than South Australia and Tasmania and the ACT. I mean, it's not – GDP is a flawed measure. No, 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 Like, no, we're no, gonna no. have that conversation. Yeah. But yeah. what happens here matters. But
0: the thing is, is that if you get things wrong, mm-hmm. it impacts the entire country in a very visible way. And so
1: – And not only are we the, the sort of, um, I guess, engine house of the economy in Australia and certainly in New South Wales – we're also the front doorstep I yeah. mean people arrive and they want to see that bridge and they want to see that pointy building yeah. and then everything else they're like show me what else you want. And buy. they
0: want to see the water The water's good to that the, the bridge goes over yeah. and that surrounds the pointy, the pointy building, building right? Yeah. no but this is the thing you're right this is the front door when people think Australia they'll think koalas and they'll think the opera house mm-hmm. right maybe Uluru if they're a little bit more experienced mm-hmm. but you have the, in that sense the trust of the nation being placed on you for being the front doorstep okay so then but this is interesting because the needs of the visitors are not necessarily the same as the needs of the residents uh, mm,
1: eh, i don't know because actually when you go traveling right. around the world and australians are great big travelers yes. and it's extraordinary uh the things that we appreciate and we love about other people's cities are the things that Enhanced quality of life of residents too. It's walkability, and great urban amenity. It's mm. excellent public transport. Mm-hmm. It's vibrant, free public space. Mm. Um, it's beautiful cultural institutions that are inclusive and progressive and bring people in. Um, it's green greenery and parks. And, uh, you know, it's have being able to walk and cycle around your city. So, actually, I don't think our interests are too far apart.
0: Okay. All right. So, we've seen, I guess, in the 14 years – that the Lord Mayor has been in office, which are the same fourteen years that I've lived here, apparently I have good timing. You've got great timing. We we we've seen the we've seen the city transform. Let let's sort of take this out because all of the cities in Australia are growing, mm. right? You know, we know this. Cities are growing at different rates. It looks like Melbourne will actually be bigger than Sydney in a little mm. be, somewhere over the next half billion seconds that will happen. Some of that's because we can't necessarily grow that fast or we don't want to grow that fast. But there's an enormous pressure to grow. Last night, I I read the official figures are out. Sydney is now the 10th most expensive city to live in in the world. It's official.
1: We'd pop champagne, but we can't afford it.
0: Well, exactly, because we're paying rent or (laughs) or, or paying our our expensive mortgages. And so we now have this idea that growth is clearly good, but growth has also now... becoming becoming a focal point, and there's a national conversation about how much we want to grow in the future. Some of that conversation is happening in the city. People don't want to see Sydney turn into a high-density, you know, the phrase, I think, is battery chickens in their cages. That's the phrase that Dick Smith likes to use. And so... As a politician who's now at the coalface for all of this, how do you balance the vision for what the city should be versus what the city has to be, mm. right?
1: The thing is, I think a lot of people don't think growth is good and I think a lot of people are afraid and they see too many cranes and too many road blocks, uh, blocks, and all the rest of it. And, and it is impacting on people's quality of life. But if you don't, uh, so the state government sets housing targets Mm. and for the city of Sydney, our housing target for the next few years is 16,000 extra dwellings, whereas if you go just into the next local government area, their target is 300 dwellings. The uh, demands of density are not being distributed proportionately or fairly and the uh, rewards of density, which is... uh, you know, quality of life mm. and, and, and high volume um, open all the time, city services and, you know, fresh food and, and you know, high turnover um, production and, and industries, all of that sort of stuff isn't really happening and people aren't getting the social and public space infrastructure that they need to ma- to do density done well.
0: And this is the interesting thing because as near as I can tell from my own work as a futurist that, in fact, density is really, really good. It's an incredible economic accelerant that, in fact, people enjoy living in high density where there's amenity for it, right? Yes. That Because there's you're constantly doing things, you're meeting people, you're exchanging ideas, you're finding ways to work together. It's all of those great things. It's not just sitting and mowing your quarter acre block and having a backyard barbecue, which is in some sense an ideal for a certain generation, but may not be an ideal for a 25 or 30-year-old who's looking at life quite differently. So how do we need to start thinking about the fact, okay, Sydney's city is going to be high density. What do we start to think about what our city looks like? And let's connect this to, you know, what Darren Sharp was talking about with sharing cities. How do we activate what the city is over that next billion seconds?
1: This is the big conversation of our time. Uh, You know, I think cities are the future. Cities are the place um, that drive economic Um, development, um, social uh, cohesion and inclusion around the world. Um, They're places where innovation is is born, where where new things happen, where people learn how to live together and be tolerant and accepting and then joyous Mm. about the diversity that we live amongst. But cities have to be acts of collective imagination Mm. and we lack the structures and the language and the cultural tools that we need to achieve that act. And I say that because, you know, as you said, in a very short time, Australia's gone from idealising and being very well uh, accustomed and acclimatised to um, the suburban lifestyle, as much as that didn't really work for that many people, unless you could drive and had enough money, anyway, a lot of things. But that's the image and that's how we know how to live and that's how we know how to relate to our neighbours and all the rest of it. And suddenly now we're living in, you know, 50-storey apartment buildings where our only common space where we meet our neighbours might be the lift well mm. and um, and where we don't really have a place to interact and get to know each other. and a lack of knowledge and a lack of experience with each other can breed suspicion. It can can, can isolate people further. And well,
0: again, you're going to feel like the battery chicken, yeah. right? You're feeling like you're going from your cubicle at the office to your cubicle at home and and that all of the rest of the space is not for you, yeah. right? You're just passing through it. And that's probably the opposite of how we should feel in our city space. I mean, I spent my last holidays in Hong Kong and everyone's like, why would you go to Hong Kong for holidays? It's like... Actually, I totally love the experience in part because, again, it's that dynamic, vital, everything's happening at street level. People are out all the time, even though in July you're just sweaty all the time. But that's the deal. (laughs) It's Hong Kong. But there's this idea that the public space that the city space is the public space and the space that no one goes to up you know what the really expensive houses are up on the peak they're not near anything it's like why would you go there oh yeah the rich people live up there but it's not the living city which is down here it's down on the harbor and it feels like that's what we want
1: I'm the same as you I go on holidays to cities I I just want to be where the people are I feel safest when I'm in a crowd and that dynamism the authenticity the grit the chaos mm. the the feeling that anyone could put up a you know a, a table and start selling some you know steamed buns I'm into that. We have a lot of rules in Australia and we have a lot of rules in in, um, a lot of Western countries that make it harder to do that. But for me, one of the most dynamic and interesting cities in the world is a place like Bangkok where over the course of a day you have multiple uses of the same piece of footpath. And, yeah, there's these terrible freeways, but people are under the freeways doing an aerobics class with a huge group of people and it just blows my mind. It's like – and you know what? A successful city is a city where people – feel entitled and they don't wait for someone else to come along and fix the crack or to you know take out that right. that you know that tree that's annoying or whatever they do it themselves
0: right and it's like in the bund in shanghai the same thing where everyone is or i should say all the grandmothers are out doing tai chi yes it, Six thirty in the morning. Everyone kept on saying, "Oh, you have to go see it." I could never get out of bed earlier. <laughs> but it was—it's that. But that's a multi-use space because yeah. then there's tours on it the rest of the day. But they know they can run out there and they're in the parks and everyone's doing that. And you do see that happening to some degree in the city parks. But if we know where we want to go and we know that that's probably what people are being drawn to the city for, how, as a politician, <laughs> right, as someone who's actually sort of charged with maybe if not coming up with a vision, articulating the vision, how do we actually get there?
1: One of the things that's really difficult is that it's not just my vision. And as an extremely opinionated person, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know. And, and that includes, must hurt. It hurts. Oh, this is a new listening thing that I have to do. But Clover's very good at it as well. I mean, she's we've got this unique thing that's happened in Sydney where we've had someone with a vision and then also the consistency of governance mm. over 14 years and Monica, who you mentioned, the CEO, 11 years and 12 years. So, I mean, that makes a huge difference. But the thing that they do and that I'm trying to learn from is community consultation in a broader strategic sense. Now, I've heard people describe community consultation as yelling sessions where people are just invited in to shout at the poor consultants who are being paid to not listen to them. Um, But what local government does is we have... um, something called a community strategic plan. You do it every 10 years and it's for the next 20 years, which makes perfect sense. And
0: um, Oh, so Sydney 2020?
1: Yeah, so it was Sustainable Sydney 2030 right. was the first one. The 2020, I think, is a state plan. Okay. So uh, you'd think they should align, but they don't. Sustainable Sydney 2030, the process, that was adopted in 2007 and there was at least a year and a half of working with people to talk about, well, what do you want from Sydney? What are your priorities? And the number one priority people came back with was – fighting climate change, tackling climate change. Sustainable. Sustainable, right? Sustainable, green, global and connected. Connected, That's where it came from. And so there was already a level of buy-in and then when people hear you coming to them and saying, now we're doing this, it's part of this plan, it makes sense to them. And they go, yeah, I've signed up for that. So we're about to undertake that process again because the time has come around. And so we have to imagine What Sydney looks like between now and 2050.
0: Mm, The next billion seconds. I've
1: heard.
0: (laughs) Okay. So then what you're saying is leadership is really, it starts with listening, which is, I mean, if it's a democracy, you kind of have to start there. But at the same time, and again, we'll come back to that line from Henry Ford, which is, if I'd listened to the people, I would have given them a faster horse and not an automobile, that you listen, but you also have to have a direction.
1: A hundred percent, because you know what—it's everybody's busy, and it's, there's only a few mega nerds out there, like like me, and I, you know, probably people listening to this podcast, um, who are wonderful nerds, who are gonna go read about this stuff for fun and listen to this podcast as they're doing the dishes. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so we're out there, living and breathing this stuff, and we need to be able to bring these ideas and these visions and proposals to the to the people and say. Do you want us to go prototype this? Do you want us to try this in your neighborhood? If you adapted this, how would you do it? And what are your problems that we can try and bring you solutions to? And um, and it's, you know, we're the political side of things. So we can help uh, to, I suppose, get a sense and take that pulse of the people and what they're interested in. And then we have amazing um, city staff who are area specialists, and then they come back with their proposals and, and policies as well.
0: We're talking to Jess Scully, city Sydney councillor, on The Next Billion Seconds, and we will be right back. And we're back on The Next Billion Seconds, talking to Sydney city councillor Jess Scully. Here's an interesting thing about what's going on in Toronto right now. And I I actually have some friends who are working on this, and and, uh, back in, I guess it was November sort of October, November, Google came out with a very interesting offer for the city of Toronto. Ooh, give us this beautiful waterfront property and we'll turn it into this magical district and free Wi-Fi and all of these sensors. And they essentially closed the deal without consultation. The city announced the deal without really consulting its citizens, which is causing a lot of trouble for Toronto Council now. But you also now have, in New York City, there are these towers, particularly in Midtown, but they're actually out through all of the boroughs, where you can recharge your phone, you can get Wi-Fi off of them.
1: All for free, Mark?
0: Well, yeah. And there, and we come back to this repeated theme. And if you want to learn more about this, go listen to the episode with Robert Tursik, because free ain't really free Mm-mm. because those towers are gathering all data. In fact, they're actually doing facial recognition on you. And there's an entire subculture of people in New York who are specifically figuring out where these are and wearing masks around these things so that they can't be tracked because a tower can see your Wi-Fi. And see your face, and now it has uniquely identified you, knows where you're going, knows what time you're doing it, and so it becomes more data to feed these data collection engines. And there's a real sense here for these commercial entities that cities, because we're upping the density, because everyone's walking around with a smartphone, because everyone's connecting and trading and having fun and doing commerce that there are these honey pots of data so do you have people coming to you going oh we have all this cool stuff we could do if you just sign on the dotted line yeah
1: yeah right it's the snake oil sales people of the 21st century and Look, it's not just the salespeople. There's also every politician who wants to be a hashtag innovation ideas boom (laughs) champion, right? And it's the most naive, simplistic and dangerous approach to city making. And I have a lot of feelings about this because I think the smart city is the biggest, baddest con that's been pulled on cities. There's nothing smart about turning your public realm into somebody else's data scraping exercise. There's nothing smart about turning over what should be a free public realm, a place where you can have political dissent, a place where you can have unpopular opinion and expression of other kinds. And, and graffiti. And, and yeah, divergent points of view and, and non-commercial activities and then just handing it over so that every person is identified and tracked and, and commoditized in public space we need to have a global conversation about what the digital public realm is but yet we get so many people coming to us you know politicians and otherwise saying why don't you have free wi-fi in the city why aren't our bins collecting data why aren't our you know Mm -hmm. benches doing xyz it's like You can give this stuff away in the first generation like Toronto did and you will have no control over the results. And what we're losing is so huge.
0: And the city actually has free Wi-Fi in the libraries, the public libraries. It makes the public libraries really, really popular spaces. And so it's not that the city isn't doing it blanket. Now, Adelaide City Mm. is going to be doing it blanket. But again, it's a state government initiative. But there appears to be some corporate involvement. And so different cities negotiate this Differently, I don't think there's going to be a one-size-fits-all because we aren't having, as you point out, this larger conversation.
1: But who is negotiating this and what are their KPIs and priorities? If your kpi oh, oh, my gosh, there I am. I'm a bureaucrat. It's happened. Um, if your key performance indicator is to get the Wi-Fi in the city, then sure, if someone comes along and gives you the biggest, baddest 10 gigabit and all the rest of it that they're talking about in Adelaide – then sure, tick, tick, tick. But is it also your job to put an ethical overlay over the nature of what the public realm is? You know, we have these really siloed approaches and actually what we need here is a conversation about values, ethics, what a society is, what a city is and what the point of public space is.
0: And what your inalienable rights as a person inside that space is around yourself, your agency, the data that is you.
1: And you know what? The European Union is doing this smashingly and Barcelona is doing this smashingly. And
0: Bologna is doing it as well, yes. Yes.
1: Because they are starting from the proposition that each person has sovereignty over their own data. Each person has the right to determine um, how they transact with that data. And um, and so, the, like the DECODE project in the EU is is something that right. um, I think is- and a, a
0: SOLID project in America.
1: Yeah, I think is, is a really great benchmark for us. And we're not having that conversation here. And there are a lot of um, side effects of that because we're not starting from the proposition that actually this is a set of human rights mm. um, that need to be clarified and um, in, in some way And codify. particularly
0: in cities, because cities are these particularly dense uh, uh, collections of that kind of data, right? It's like, yeah, in the suburbs, you're going to generate the data, but it's going to be at the shopping mall or mm. things like this. But it's, in the city, it's actually standing in the street. It's, it's the life of the city is the fact that it has that density that has that data. So in some ways, the questions and the needs are amplified in a city in a way that they aren't in other areas.
1: Don't get me wrong. I still think there are a lot of useful sensors and IOT and all the rest of it. And, you know, I think it's great that we know where we have efficiency losses in buildings and we can track our trees and we can, you know, get a sense of of how buildings and, and performance can um, improve. But once we start tracking people and their interactions, and that's what happens with things like um, the sort of uh, beacon led mm. and and um, data scraping approach, that's when we hit some real problems.
0: Well, and a lot of that is actually already happening via your cell phone carrier because you're, you're, yeah. they know where you are all the time, but they also regard that information as very closed because they know that if it gets out, everything goes away. But all also
1: right. there's regulation around that and yes. there's less regulation around the rest.
0: So... I want to sort of change tack a little bit because, you know, we've talked about what the city is becoming and the way you need to move the city along. But all of this is now happening against a political context. And let me, for listeners who are not familiar with the story, just fill in a little bit. So the election in which you were elected, the 2016 election. Yes. The state government, which is of a particular political persuasion that does not like the Lord Mayor because she's an independent and she's been very successful, basically changed the electoral laws (laughs) to heavily weight. So one of the interesting things is in the city of Sydney is that businesses also can vote. So it's not just the people who are living there, the residents, but it's the businesses also get a vote. And the state government said, you know what, we're going to give businesses two votes. And oh, by the way, we're going to fine you if you don't use them. And they expected that because the mayor is perceived in the media as being anti-business, that this would end up unseating the mayor. And in fact, when the ballots were counted, and I remember watching the results come in, and I remember watching you win But I remember that the mayor had the largest electoral majority pretty much, I think, in history (laughs) because the people and the businesses of the city weren't having a lick of what The government, the state government was trying to sell them.
1: And also this idea that actually if you invest in the public realm and in social inclusion and in fighting climate change, businesses like it too.
0: Well, it makes a good environment for everyone. So the moment was that, yeah, you can try to play with the electoral laws, you can try to weight it, but at some level democracy is going to be amazingly is going to be resilient against that kind of, of play. But at the same time, we're now functioning in a media environment that is, when you take a look at the world when Clover got elected, so 2003, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was a web and people were using it and there were news sites, Fairfax was on it and everything like that, but people were still kind of getting their... their news of the world in the same way and now you know you're going to find out on something about something on twitter 15 seconds after it happens Mm. and a politician makes a gaffe and it's that or a right-wing radio commentator says this and it's that and everything is incredibly amplified and now the head of the act the chief minister of the act kind of lost his i don't know if you can call it lost his temper i will let me just read a little bit of what he had to say here this is from the Canberra times The government want to hear directly from Canberrans and communicate directly back to them, quote, not through the filter of journalists and particularly through the filter of print journalism, which is a dying industry, he said, inviting ideas for digital video and creative content that would, quote, completely sweep aside the reputation that Canberra has for being bureaucratic and dull unquote. So you can hear the chief minister essentially going, look, at, I want to just get rid of all the old media, whatever, and connect directly to the people. And of course, in the Trump era, because we now actually have the leader of the free world connecting directly to people via his Twitter account. He fired the Secretary of State on Twitter the week that we recorded this broadcast. So we are in a different world. You are... A politician living in a world where there is a conversation that is happening about you and around you all of the time. How do you work in that environment?
1: Oh, so this is a tricky one because mm. I mean this is not happening in the context of the media living its best life, right? You know, I mean, True. I studied journalism and Lauren. I have, I respect the fourth estate. Yep. It is critical. Yes. You know, it's one of the foundations of our democracies to have highly skilled, trained people with specific knowledge and memory, investigating and and holding politicians accountable. We have less of that now because you have the one person who's been there for 10 minutes because they're cheaper and they have to cover 10 rounds. And so you don't get as the in-depth Um, and and incisive coverage that you you used to get, but it's still crucial to have journalists there. Having said that, we also have a very, very oppositional relationship with conservative media um, at the city because, I mean, we are the most fabulous sort of piñata for them. You know, look, we're progressive, we're independent, we love art, we love bikes. I mean, come and hit us, right? So we never really get our story across through them anyway Um, and they don't really want to talk to our audience.
0: Right, but this is a whole. Sort of. I mean, now we're talking about the fake news culture, yeah. right? And that each of each side perceives the other as being the bearer of fake news, of and course. therefore tunes out.
1: Totally. And also, I have had the most extraordinary and excellent experience in creating content and putting it out through social media. So I'm uh, another one of the counsellors that got elected with me on Clover's team is Jess Miller, and we're both kind of you know in our 30s, young women um, who are on Instagram and. Facebook and make stupid videos with pop culture references and emojis and I mean, we get 20,000 views of our videos about local planning regulation. Oh, my God. You know, we're currently up to like 5,000 submissions to the late night development control plan review. You know, things that are ridiculous and unheard of in terms of engaging, particularly people of our generation and younger Mm. who would never engage with, I've never made a submission in my life to a local government, anything or the other. So how do we break through and hear from those people we don't normally hear from? So I do understand where he's coming from from, but...
0: Is he overreacting?
1: The thing is, we've just replaced one set of gatekeepers with another, because i got to pay Zuckerberg if I want to get my videos across, and I'm not happy about that no, either. No, um, And also, the insight and the the tough questions that journalists can ask are important Um, and so you can't just say the media's dead I'm not going to talk to them anymore that is such a simplistic reaction Um, and I'd love it if we had our own channels and and free and fair ways to communicate with citizens that didn't require me paying you know Mark Zuckerberg and and targeting the heck out of everyone that I want to talk to. (laughs)
0: And so we are in this interesting moment because in some ways it's a transitional moment in media. We don't necessarily want to lose any of the technique, experience, and capacity that we have there. And yet at the same time, there's been a migration of, of attention toward these other forms, where like is also the gatekeeper, basically. At least he's only asking you for money. I mean, if he starts to say, actually, you can't post that because that is not in our terms of service. And this is exactly what happens in other domains. Mm-hmm. So no nipples, essentially. Essentially, is what you're saying. Well, <laughs> here, here, that's exactly what it would be. It would yeah. be, it would be no nipples. If it were China, it would be different kinds of talks about, about issues that would be off the table, yeah. right? And 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 this is where there's a gatekeeper that is not. Uh, it's not up.
1: democratic. It's not
0: democratic. Precar- not that the media companies are either, no, no, no. but that at least it's a level playing field around access that anyone can theoretically set up their own their right. own newsletter. So given that this is the environment and given that your approach is, well, I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to make it and I'm going to have to pay the gatekeeper. So that's the deal. Do you think that that's going to change over the next billion seconds or because if you're successful, you can have a, You could easily have a 30 year career in politics. I know. I know. The face you're making right now is is really precious. Do You know,
1: my head just started going white pretty much the same time I got elected. Seriously?
0: Yeah. No. Why? Why am I not surprised to hear yeah, this? Yeah. No. Um, so, but you, you could, you could, if one things go well, you could have a, a billion second career, helping Sydney be great. At the end of that, what is your relationship to all of the voters out here? How how are you talking to them?
1: My big concern is you referred to it earlier as polarization. Mm. You know, and. We're seeing this huge gulf. I mean, Australia used to pride itself on its egalitarianism, and now we have one of the fastest accelerating um, rates of inequality. Um, And this wonderful, incredibly privileged part of the city that I get to live in and work in and represent is one of the most privileged places in the world. And I mean, we have incredible, uh, incredible diversity of communities, and we have got, um, we still got communities that that aren't um, as advantaged, and that do other honourable and need support. Um, but the polarisation between the haves and the have-nots have is so stark and it is growing. Um, and when that happens and you don't have a, a shared social space a mm. shared commons to have a conversation and to talk about what matters to everyone, yeah. you have a real problem. So, I mean, I'd love it if we were able to create our own channels um, in some way to have those conversations with people. I mean, we do we end up back at the new version of the newsletter, you know? Do right. we end up back at some new version of the town hall meeting or the kind of community book club or barbecue or, you know, how do we give people... Um, some sense of contribution and belonging and identity and recognition in their local areas. And, I mean, I think... Local politics is the place where you can make change and also feel like you're valuable and your thoughts are heard. Because
0: hurt. you as an individual move the needle in local politics. Yeah, That's the beautiful thing. Absolutely. And
1: every letter you send counts. Every call you make counts. I always run into people who tell me what's working and what's not working. Mm. You know, you're much more accountable than I think at other levels of government. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, because... It's everything. Talk it away. <laughs> that's right. Okay. So if cities are the future, we're, we're agreed on that. And we have politics as usual running right now. What does that mean in the future? Because we can actually see in some ways cities are – we had this national state era where there's th- these nations. And now we're actually starting to see cities sort of become important where it's it's Shanghai or it's Hong Kong or it's Melbourne or it's Sydney. It's not Australia. It's Mumbai, you know. What is that telling us about what the world looks like in the future in terms of – I mean, does that mean that the folks who are running local government are sort of in the driver's seat now?
1: We could be, and and in other parts of the world they are. I mean, you referred to Athens and to Singapore uh, mm. in your introduction, and absolutely, we are entering the age of the city-state again, rather than the nation-state. And we're also seeing these um, mega-region conurbations that are occurring all over the world. And people talk about the region between New York and Boston as being one contiguous yeah. um, city, for example. Which is exactly where I grew up. Ah,
0: so yes. You know,
1: I mean, Tokyo, Osaka. You've got yeah. 30 million people in that area um, and they start to operate they functionally they operate as one place where mm-hmm. people live and work and visit mm-hmm. but yet we have a highly fragmented local um, f- state and federal approach here in, in Australia. Um, we have 31 councils here in in what people would experience as Sydney mm-hmm. um, we have a state government that controls things that in other parts of the world, cities control. So um, in New York, for example, they control transport. Um, In uh, London, they control public housing. We don't have that kind of control. I mean, even to the level of... Some streets are controlled by the roads and maritime services and some streets are controlled by local government here in in our city of Sydney. Planning has been pulled away from local government just with the stroke of a pen. Both parties supported it in in August last year and it's going to have a devastating effect. Um, So as you start to defang local government at the same time that you see the rising importance of local government globally, we have a real tension here in Australia politically that needs to be resolved. And when you look at where really significant change is happening globally, particularly in fighting climate change.
0: It's in the cities. It's the
1: cities. Yeah.
0: Jess Scully, this has been an amazing tour through the political present and all the way into the future of our cities and our politics. Thank you very much for being our guest on. The Next Billion Seconds.
1: Thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure.
0: When I was growing up, this is in the 1970s and 80s, one of the most powerful politicians in America was the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, who was a congressman from Massachusetts. And he famously quipped that all politics is local. So it doesn't matter whether you're president, doesn't matter whether you're governor, doesn't matter whether you're a mayor. It really is about the local relationships, and if you don't get those right, then not only are you not going to get elected, you're not going to have anything worth governing. And I think in the conversation with Jess, we've seen how the local and the global are just two sides of the same story. We'll be linking to Jess's details, so be sure to look for that on our brand new website, nextbillionseconds.com. Has our conversation gotten you to thinking locally? If so, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our LinkedIn page, send us a message on Twitter. Tell us what you want to know about that local future, and we'll do our best to bring it to you in a future episode. In the next episode of this second series of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll be speaking to financial and banking futurist Andrew Davis about what banks are becoming and how we may be using them to protect the things that are even more important than money. That's the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The next million seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Audiogram by Dee Hawala. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. This is Mark Pesci, thanking you for listening.